the last chapter of Matthew. Matthew is the first book in the New Testament, so if you're trying to figure out how to get there in your Bible, that is where you'll go. And chapter 28 is where we'll be today. In light of the unrest and uh, tensions and violence and things that have been erupting in our world and our nation in the last couple of months, we've been taking some time on Sunday mornings to look to God's Word uh, to consider what it has to say about justice, the justice of God, and how that is expressed in the justice of His people, of the church. So our series is called Just God, Just Church, and what that justice might look like if it's uh, bent outward into our uh, communities and uh, our society. And so... The first week in this series, we, uh, we explored Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan and uh, the command specifically to love our neighbors. And we heard there a warning from the Lord about how asking who is my neighbor may be a tactic that we can use to dodge responsibility. Just like the man in that story asked Jesus this self-justifying question, who is my neighbor? We, we can find ourselves guilty of trying to, to narrow the category of neighbor down to something manageable, right? Something that we can handle. Well, if my neighbor is only these few people in this particular box, then maybe it's not so hard or not so much as asking me after all. We need to be careful about how we define who is our neighbor? And I think the Lord made his point very clear by telling the parable. It's not so much which people should you love. It's you be sure that you are a neighbor to those around you who are in need. Last week, we considered God's word to Israel during their exile in Babylon and his command in Jeremiah 29, 7, that they should seek the welfare of the city, even this place where they were living in, in exile, this godless pagan society. And we observed that the same concern for the shalom, the peace, the welfare of the city ought to be shared by Christians today uh, toward the, the cities and nations in which we live. And so the, this regard for the well-being, the shalom of the city uh, is something that as Christian exiles living in a world that is not our true home, uh, we ought to be mindful of the needs of those around us, even outside of the church. In my next two messages, including today uh, in this series, I'd like to turn your attention to the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God, which is a huge and weighty topic. Uh, it's a theologically rich topic. It was itself the theme of the preaching of Jesus and the apostles. If you read the, the Gospels, you'll see very clearly that the, the summary of Jesus' teaching that the Gospel writers give is Jesus went about proclaiming the kingdom of God or telling everyone that the kingdom of God was near. And the apostles in the book of Acts are seen doing the very same thing. The kingdom of God was the core content of the message of Jesus and his apostles. It's a topic that we maybe neglect uh, a bit to our detriment. And so I don't expect in two sermons to get everything about the kingdom of God that could be said or thought or, or known. Um, 
in front of you, but I do hope that as we look at the, the, the theme and the idea of the kingdom of God, that it will give us um, some ideas about what this might look like in the world where we live and in the church. It has strong implications, I believe, for how Christians live as exiles in a fallen world. Next time, we'll uh, consider the nature and the character and the citizens of the kingdom of God. So what exactly is the shape of the kingdom? What does the kingdom look like? What is the, the character of the kingdom of God? And today, we're going to look at uh, the final command of Jesus to his disciples, as recorded in Matthew's gospel. Of course, each of the gospels has some variation or some version of Jesus giving a commission to his followers, his disciples, uh, to, to go and sort of carry on the work uh, that he came to do, in a way. Um, but the passage at the end of Matthew's Gospel is, is probably the most robust and sort of uh, complete of these commission statements, and has itself become known over the past hundred years or so, probably, as the Great Commission. It's not, uh, it, you might have a heading in your Bible text that calls it that, the Great Commission. Jesus didn't ever call it that. He didn't introduce it like that. And now I'm going to give you your Great Commission. Are you ready? But that's how people have begun to speak about it because the, the weight of it and the importance of it is so clear. When you think of a person uh, sort of giving his, his last words, if you will, when somebody is leaving or somebody is dying. In this case, obviously, Jesus is not dying, but he is going away for a while. And so those final words take on a sort of a weight and a significance that, that maybe we weren't paying attention before, but now that we know this is the last thing he's going to tell us, we're listening closer, right? And so Jesus takes the opportunity with these sort of final words to his disciples to give some marching orders for his church. And we're going to consider specifically what the church's mission has to do with the kingdom of God. So again, we have to bookmark a little bit the, the character and shape of the kingdom of God for our next, uh, for our next time. Uh, but I want us to see that the, that the commission itself uh, is not unrelated to the kingdom of God. And so we want to think about how that relationship between the Great Commission and the Kingdom might help us to make sense of our responsibility to the world around us and, and as the, the people of God. So, in Matthew chapter 28, I'm going to read for you verses 16 through 20. Christ has risen from the dead. He has spent time with His disciples. He's appeared to many. And uh, He is uh, about to ascend back into heaven. In fact, the verses that Austin read for us earlier in the beginning of Acts records the ascension of Jesus and another sort of uh, another statement that Jesus made in this context uh, of a, another sort of a commission. So here in Matthew chapter 28, beginning of verse 16, it says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, the eleven, remember, minus Judas, who is no longer with them, they went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, 
teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That is how Matthew's Gospel concludes. And that is the quote-unquote Great Commission. So, a few observations about the Great Commission from these few verses that I'd like to make. Number one, the Great Commission is all about the Kingdom of God. The Great Commission is about the Kingdom of God. Now, you might miss that because he doesn't say the word kingdom here. He doesn't say the phrase kingdom of God, so you might think this doesn't have much to do with that particular topic or theme. But the commission itself is framed in terms of Jesus' authority as the king. He begins it in verse 18 by saying to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Who has the authority? It's the king, right? The one who has risen, ascended the throne, has been given power over the realm to reign and to rule and to decide and to lead is the king. And Jesus here says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So Jesus begins his final instructions to his disciples by announcing his kingly authority. The time has come. The moment has arrived. All authority has been given to me. That's how he starts it. And then the final thing that he says, the final sort of command in this commission down in verse 20 is that that they should teach the disciples that they're making, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded. Who makes commands? Someone with authority, namely a king. So I contend that the kingdom of God is the assumed context of this entire uh, commission. The instructions Jesus gives are all about his authority as king and the realm in which he reigns as king. Now, of course, there's a, a, a sense in which he reigns over the entire world as the sovereign God, but there's a special sense in which as the king of this kingdom, he reigns over uh, his people, those who yield their, their hearts and lives to him. And we'll see that more as this unfolds. But the first thing to see is that the Great Commission is given in, in, within the framework of Jesus' authority. All authority has been given to me and then teaching them to observe all life commanded. So we're talking about the authority of Jesus. That's what discipleship is all about. The Great Commission is all about that. That means more than simply we're obligated to obey this commission because it's given by a king. That's that's often how this is used. To say, well, when Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth is given to me, therefore go... He's telling them, hey, you need to listen to this. You need to obey what I say because I'm the king and I have the authority to give you this command. That's true. It certainly is not, he's not saying less than that, but I believe he's saying more than that. It's not merely we need to uh, obey because one with authority has given us the command. It defines the very nature of discipleship, which is itself the mission of the church, right? Jesus gives 
his disciples this mission, go make disciples. And what does it mean to make disciples? Well, it means at some level coming to grips with the authority of Jesus as the king, with, with submitting yourself to King Jesus. In other words, discipleship centers on shaping our lives around Jesus' kingdom. Discipleship is kingdom-shaped. Disciple-making, if that's what discipleship is, discipleship is centering our lives around the kingdom of God, then the making of disciples, which is the particular job that he gives, the making of disciples must entail teaching and cultivating kingdom-shaped values and priorities, right? If we're making disciples, then we are training them to live as citizens of a kingdom. Not citizens of an earthly kingdom, but citizens of the kingdom of God, which transcends any earthly, political, or geographical boundaries. So that's the, the first thing I want to, to point out is simply that the Great Commission itself, and thus the nature of discipleship, is about the kingdom of God. It's also, frankly, just really good news. When That Jesus has been given all authority is a tremendous source of hope and confidence for the Christian. If you imagine that you lived in, in a war-torn country that's been ravaged by violence and poverty and despair because of evil leadership, and then you find that this evil leader has been overthrown and that a, a, a man of, of honor and integrity uh, who's known as one who loves people and cares about his neighbor comes into power. The ascension of this good man in place of the wicked regime is very good news, right? There, there is a, a hopefulness and a joy that would begin to permeate the fabric of that culture. Just the very fact that somebody has been given authority who cares and who is kind and who is a good man earth in an earthly horizontal way, right? It brings hope. And so the fact that Jesus here announces his authority, it should hit us in exactly the same way. When Jesus says all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, we ought to be going, man, it's about time. It's here, right? The king is ascending his throne because Jesus is the king who will bring, to, to quote from Isaiah 61, the, the king who will bring good news to the poor, who will bind up the brokenhearted, who will proclaim liberty to captives and the opening of prison to those who are bound. He will be the one to proclaim the year of Yahweh's favor, to comfort all who mourn, to replace mourning with gladness and faintness with praise. This is, this is King Jesus ascending the throne. So when He says, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to Me, it is a declaration to us, His people, His church, that His purposes will be fulfilled. God's redemptive mission in the world will be accomplished. The kingdom will surely come in its fullness. So this is good news. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Praise God. The king is taking his throne. 
And so he commissions his church into the world with the assurance of his kingdom's ultimate success and with the announcement the kingdom of God has drawn near, which is what he's been preaching all along throughout the Gospels. And now as Matthew's Gospel ends, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. So the Great Commission is all about the kingdom of God. Second point that I want to make about the Great Commission in this text is that the Great Commission is about discipleship, not merely conversion. It's about discipleship, not merely conversion. Often, passages like this one, probably this one even more than others, uh, are used to sort of you know, fire up the troops, if you will, to go and tell people about Jesus and, and win converts to Christianity. And I don't think that's wrong. I think clearly that is an aspect of what it means to announce the kingdom of Jesus, to announce that King Jesus has taken his throne, that the kingdom is drawn near. It surely means inviting people into that kingdom, which is what we call evangelism. That is the, the telling of the gospel, right? So clearly uh, we are to, to be concerned with, with the conversion of people who are in darkness into light, right? Uh, but it's more than that. And if you think about the invitation of the gospel itself, like when you're talking to someone who's not a Christian and you're inviting them to trust in Jesus, th- that invitation is more than merely uh, to agree with certain facts about Jesus. Jesus was God's son. Jesus lived a sinless life. Jesus died on the cross for sins. Jesus rose from the dead. If you believe in him, you'll go to heaven, right? Those are some facts about Jesus. Those are true things. Our gospel conversations need to include those, those realities. But it's more than that. Do you think those things are true? Yes. Cool. You're converted. It's more than agreeing with some facts. It's submitting to Jesus's authority. That's what is at the very heart of conversion in itself. For someone to be converted is for someone to recognize Jesus is the king and I am going to yield my life to him. Remember the way that Paul words it in Romans 10. If you confess with your mouth, what? Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. There's a a submission of heart and yielding of life to Jesus' authority that is uh, essential to conversion. So conversion itself then is not merely a matter of cognitive assent to certain doctrines. It's a crowning of Jesus Christ as king in your life. And if that's the case, then any version of discipleship that stops with conversion is a facade. Any vision of the church's mission that goes only as far as making converts, like getting someone to check a box, I would like to be a Christian, okay, cool, work done, guts Jesus' commission of its heart and casts aside the reality, the centrality, and the certainty of the kingdom of God. Conversion is about much more than merely agreeing to some facts. It's about submitting your life to the authority of Jesus as king. And if that's true of conversion, then how much more is discipleship as a full and robust uh, endeavor about the, the training of a person the shaping of a life around the reality of God's kingdom. That's the thing that he says very next, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. 
to observe what? The few central facts of the gospel? No. To observe all I have commanded. And observe doesn't mean look at and go, oh, that's interesting that he commanded that. It means obey, right? Jesus says, I've got authority. I'm giving commands. And discipleship is all about growing into a person who obeys the commands of Jesus in his word. Not just the core doctrines of Christianity, but the the ethical and moral commands as well. And not just the, the sort of red letters, just the words of Jesus, but everything inspired by the Spirit of God given to us in his word, we are responsible to know and obey. So discipleship entails this full-bodied, full-orbed endeavor of teaching, instructing, and yielding life to the authority of Jesus. So it contains much more than what we maybe often ascribe to it. A few chapters earlier, Matthew 23, Jesus is giving a list of what are called woes, which are kind of pronouncements of judgment upon the scribes and Pharisees and the religious leaders of the day. And one of them that he gives in uh, verses 23 and 24 of that chapter is to condemn the religious leaders for keeping the law in matters of personal piety. In fact, it says you tithe uh, mint and dill and cumin, which is like the smallest plants that they would, the crops that they would have grown. Like, so you're obeying the law to the letter down to the smallest details but neglecting what he calls the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. His exhortation is, you should have done the former without neglecting the latter. So he doesn't say personal obedience to the law doesn't matter. He's saying you're right to obey the law, but you're, but you're missing the even weightier and more important things that I've commanded about justice and mercy and faithfulness. So to be a disciple is to grow in our understanding of Christ's commands and the Word of God and what it calls us to and to increasingly submit our lives to His authority. That's what discipleship is all about. And the Great Commission is about discipleship. He does not say, go therefore and make converts. He says, make disciples. The success of the church in accomplishing the mission should be measured less by how many people are checking the I want to be a Christian box on a response card and more by are the lives of the Christians in the church growing more kingdom shaped as time goes by. That's a far better metric for how the church is succeeding often we we default to the metrics that we can see and count how many people are there, how many converts have they have, how many people they baptized, those kind of things, how much money is in their budget. Those are the things that we tend to sort of look to to define whether uh, the church is succeeding or not. But those aren't the metrics of King Jesus. Jesus is interested in disciples whose lives are shaped and oriented around his kingdom, his authority. So are the people who are active in the life of the church growing in their understanding of Christ as king and yielding more and more of their lives to his authority? Those are far better metrics, better questions to be asking. The Great Commission is about discipleship, 
not merely conversion. The third point that I'd like to make is that the Great Commission transcends ethnic and national boundaries. You see very clearly in his command in verse 19, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. The word, the Greek word translated nations is ethne, which doesn't have to do with, with uh, geographical boundaries or a state power in any kind of political sense. It has to do with people groups. He's speaking here of every tribe, every race, every, uh, every people. So when he says to make disciples of all ethne, of all nations, he doesn't literally mean we should have some disciples from Asia and some disciples from South America, right? That's, that's not what he means. He means people from every kind of ethnic makeup ought to be disciples, right? So this, the, the kingdom of God and thus the Great Commission transcends every one of those barriers, you can see the same truth reflected in the other sort of commission texts. In Mark 13:10, he says that the gospel must be proclaimed to all ethne, to all nations, very same phrase. And in Luke chapter 24, the very end of his gospel, he says that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, all ethne, beginning from Jerusalem. And then the same author wrote Acts that Austin read for us earlier where Jesus says, power, you will be clothed with power from on high when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth, right? That, that's, those are concentric circles that expand outward. You're starting in Jerusalem, that's where we are. You're going to be my witnesses here. You're also going to be my witnesses in the region of Judea where you live. You're also going to be my witnesses in Samaria, which is a bit beyond the borders of your home state, and to the ends of the earth. Like, there is no boundary here, ethnically, nationally, geographically, um, that limits the kingdom of God and thus the task of the church in the Great Commission. It transcends every ethnic and national boundary. Kevin DeYoung says, Jesus envisions worshipers and followers present among every cultural linguistic group on the planet. So the heart of a Christian, the heart of a disciple who's growing in his understanding and, and submission to the kingdom of God must include the, the breaking of those boundaries and those barriers that sometimes keep people apart and even keep churches from uh, from reaching the people that they should be reaching. And this in fact is is an expression of God's covenant with Abraham. Back in Genesis 12 when this whole thing started, right? What did he say? I'm going to give you a child and you'll be the father of many nations and then he says that you that you might be a blessing to all the families of the earth. All the families of the earth. He's thinking very broadly beyond Jerusalem and Israel and ethnic, uh, ethnic Israel and beyond any of those sort of boundaries, right? All the families of the earth would be blessed. So this is God's heart, has been from the very beginning. So it follows that the command that Jesus gives to the disciples here would be to make disciples from every ethne, every nation. Fourth comment or fourth four thing to point out about the Great Commission is that the Great Commission centers on the local church. It centers on the local church. I would argue that the church is the domain in which the commission is to be carried out. 
Jesus doesn't envision Lone Ranger Christian evangelists floating about the globe preaching Christ. That's not what the commission is. He envisions an embodied community of faith, or, or more precisely, embodied communities of faith, holding the gospel in common and striving together in the task of disciple-making. I can see that explicitly in the commission in two ways. Jesus gives us two activities that define discipleship, right? The command, by the way, there's only one imperative verb in this passage, and it's make disciples. That's the verb. And then the others are expressions or or the manner in which those things get carried out. So we have two of those. We have baptizing and teaching. Those are the ways in which discipleship is to be carried out. Disciple-making is to be carried out. And both of those are the unique responsibility and domain of the church. Baptizing is is an activity of the church. If you look through the the book of Acts and the teaching of the apostles and the rest of the New Testament, baptism is closely connected to the community of faith, identification with the new life in Christ and their new part in that community of faith. And it is the job, therefore, of the church to sort of oversee and and steward the, the, the observance of baptism. Within baptisms, let's take those each in turn. Within baptism, there's implied faithful gospel proclamation because nobody gets baptized who hasn't been converted and nobody gets converted who hasn't uh, heard the gospel and responded to it in faith, right? And so to say that we should be baptizing disciples is to imply that we should have first been faithfully proclaiming Christ crucified and inviting people into uh, that into a relationship with him and announcing the kingdom and inviting people into the kingdom as a citizen of Jesus. Implied within baptism is the conversion of a sinner, like I, I just sort of alluded to. And in one place, the Apostle Paul speaks of conversion as a, as a transfer from one kingdom to another. They, they've been transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. That's what Paul says. So uh, the fact that someone's being baptized itself implies that there's been this, this transferal from one kingdom to another. So now we're in Christ's kingdom. And so a baptism is a marker. It's, a, it's an initiation sort of into this kingdom community. And of course, explicit in the public announcement is, is uh, excuse me, explicit in the command uh, to be baptized or to baptize others is Uh, public announcement and congregational accountability. That is, when someone gets baptized, they are saying, right, there's a statement in a baptism, I am yielding my life to Christ as king. And there's an act of sort of congregational care and accountability to say, we recognize this in you, and we're with you in this, and we're going to help you follow Jesus as a citizen of his kingdom, right? So baptism entails all of that, and that's uniquely the domain of the church. So I think when Jesus says, go make disciples and baptize them, he's envisioning the church. He's not envisioning a bunch of individuals walking around and finding people and dunking them in water. He wants this to be connected to the, the, the community of faith that is the local church. And then the second one is teaching. So baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Notice the Trinitarian nature of that, by the way. Father, Son, one name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. The community of faith, 
the people of God, the church of Jesus Christ, is the context in which this teaching and instruction is to take place. As the people of God gather around his word to read it and study it and hear it and learn it and to challenge each other and hold each other accountable to how we follow the commands of King Jesus. This is, this is the domain and the task of the church. Baptizing and teaching is what disciple making looks like. That is uniquely the domain of the church. And so I think it's, uh, it's important for us to see that the Great Commission is not just to a lot of individuals to go and spread out and do your own thing. It's to gather into local churches and to carry these things out together as a people. Final thing I'll point out here is that the Great Commission is our commission. There's been plenty of debate about who this commission is for. There have been those who have suggested, you know, he's speaking to his disciples here, the apostles really. And so he's really telling them to go and and bear witness to the kingdom. And then they do that in the book of Acts. So really the Great Commission has kind of already been fulfilled because he told the apostles to do it and they went and did it. Well, I don't think it makes any sense for Jesus to promise his presence to the end of the age if the commission had already been fulfilled in the first generation. When Jesus says, go, make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. He didn't just say to the end of your job or to the end of your life. To the end of the age. This whole age that we're living in until Christ comes again. The only reason that Christ's presence to the end of the age is necessary as a promise in this context is because the work is not yet done. The commission is yet ongoing. The church of Jesus Christ still has disciple-making work to do. We still have a kingdom to announce and to embody. We still have disciples to teach and train and instruct in the ways of the kingdom. And friends, the promise of Jesus' presence with his people is the promise of the gospel itself. The only reason that Jesus can say to us, I am with you always, is because of what he accomplished for us at Calvary. Because he went to the cross for our sins and paid our penalty. And because he rose from the dead and defeated death and sin and Satan forever. It's only because of those realities that he can promise his presence to us. Because otherwise, our sin keeps us separated from him. Our brokenness and sinfulness and transgression create a barrier between him and us. So the fact of the, the, the presence of Jesus with his people is itself a reminder of what it cost him to do this. This is a kingdom that was inaugurated and established not with a sword and with an army, but with a cross and a suffering people. This is what he calls us to. This is the work that he's given us to do and he's promised us his very presence. For those who have trusted in Jesus Christ, we are initiated, if you will, into this kingdom community. And that's what the church is supposed to be. The church is a kingdom outpost. We're, we're little embassies of the kingdom of heaven on earth. We'll talk more about that next week when we look at the shape and the character of the kingdom of God. But the church, as the people of King Jesus, are uh, is the place where his authority is mediated through his word. 
where we place ourselves under His authority and we look to the Scriptures and we help each other in this journey of following Jesus and of make, being a disciple and making disciples. So I think it helps us to see that when we consider the justice of God and the justice that ought to be uh, characterizing His people, His church, it helps us to see that the very sort of marching orders that Jesus gives to us are all about the kingdom. It's all about the kingdom of God and what it means to be citizens of that kingdom and to invite others to be citizens of that kingdom. And I think that will have implications for how we live even among those who are not yet members of that kingdom. Let's pray.